this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode. I have Pierre Rochard with us today. I'm not going to do a lot of talking here because people who are listening probably know who Pierre is. Uh, if you don't, uh, he's been running a Bitcoin advisory business for a while. He is regarded as someone quite uh, knowledgeable about Bitcoin and has spent a considerable amount of time teaching and educating and advising investors, institutional investors as well, too. So we had a long conversation about the state of the state of Bitcoin, what's happening there. We talked about SegWit and we talked about some of the scaling issues. And we just had a general purpose, all you can eat Bitcoin conversation. So this is going to be uh, pretty meaty. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are going to have lots of different opinions about this. Um, we did have a conversation about, you know, is Bitcoin the only blockchain out there? Or are there other use cases for like Ethereum and some utility cases? Don't get scared. It's going to be okay. And so this is a great chat. And I know there's going to be a lot of uh, attention on it. And there's going to be questions. And there's probably going to be some nice emails coming from it, but it was a great conversation, an important conversation, especially what happened after uh, Facebook and Calibra and Libra la uh, launching yesterday. So enjoy it. And uh, remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear the conversation with Pierre. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I am really excited to have a conversation with Pierre Rochard, who founded the Bitcoin advisory business that he has in 2018 to provide institutional investors, which we all talk about here on Base Layer, coming from the family office perspective, with independent advice about Bitcoin. So this is going to be an extensive Bitcoin conversation. So, Pierre, thank you for joining us. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your past, and uh, how you started all this. And what we'd like to do on Base Layer is not focus on the origin, kind of like the timeline of when you found Bitcoin, but really what about it kind of inspired you to pursue your career in the space? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I think that everyone like comes to this space with their own baggage and their own background of uh, what their career was up to that point, and then that inevitably um, affects how they view the space and how they view their their role in it and the opportunities in it. So, like, if you, you know, you'll have people come from like a healthcare background, they want to put healthcare records on the blockchain. Uh, you'll have someone come from from like, you know, a securities background, they're going to want to put securities on the blockchain, etc. So my own background before I, I got into Bitcoin, and it should be of no surprise to people who, who know that I'm very focused on Bitcoin, was that I was essentially like a gold bug, sound money type person. Um, and this started in like when I was in high school, uh, I was on Wikipedia, and one of the featured articles was anarcho-capitalism, which I thought is as a as a teen was a very edgy word that I was fascinated by. So I clicked on it and read through it and was like, wow, this is like my this is my political ideology. Uh, I'm an anarcho-capitalist now. Um, and so what that led me to was uh, discovering the Austrian School of Economics and uh, then really digging deep into that because I found it fascinating how they tied together all of this um, kind of uh, there's the political theory side of it with libertarianism and whatnot. And then there's the economic side of it with uh, their analysis of what causes the macroeconomic cycles. Um, and then, of course, their analysis of, you know, how much regulation should we have? Like they're very pro free market and all of that. Um, and uh, I was particularly interested in the macro side and in the question of uh, monetary economics and the uh, how it intersects with the banking system. Um, and so I was fascinated and continue to be fascinated by the debate about issues like 100% uh, reserve banking versus fractional reserve banking, 
issues like bimetallism, uh, the debates around that during the 19th century, uh, and then, of course, all the speculative uh, manias that happened both in the United States, uh, you know, in its short history, and then also just throughout the world, uh, if we kind of zoom out to uh, since humans started uh, engaging in commerce, we've always seen uh, ups and downs and cycles in that. Um, so in any case, when I heard about Bitcoin, I was already very much in the mindset of I'm, I'm looking for a sound money. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, a fan of gold and silver at the time. This was like 2012, 2013. Uh, and then I didn't it didn't really click for me until I saw the Bitcoin monetary policy and of that 21 million Bitcoin cap. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, wow, this is this is perfect. Like they, they've really figured out what what would the ideal monetary policy would be, which is uh, just hard cap it, and uh, it's even better than gold in that regard. Uh, and even setting aside all of the uh, technology and what it enables in terms of the uh, the total transaction costs involved with moving money from anyone anywhere in the world at any time, which is also just completely. Um, different from what we're used to with the existing financial system. Um, yeah, so that's that's what uh, got me very passionate about it. And simultaneously, though, there's another thread in my life, which was that uh, when I was in high school, I got interested in free and open source software uh, with uh, Linux and with the actual um, kind of philosophy behind it. And so I was like, I remember like laying in bed listening to Richard Stallman's speeches and Richard Stallman's like a theoretician of uh, the free software movement and uh, feeling guilty about the fact that I was using Mac OS on my laptop instead of using Linux. So I was already very much like in, in tune with um, what was going on on the software side of things. So when I initially like first got into Bitcoin and saw that it was very much a um, a product and a manifestation like of of the free and open source software movement because the aesthetic of like what you know when I first downloaded Bitcoin it was it was just like Bitcoin QT it was or what Bitcoin today that wasn't like um, prominently there wasn't other wallets I thought that was basically the only way to use this system uh, and the only way to receive Bitcoin was to like have a wallet and the only way to have a wallet is to like sync the full blockchain so i was, I was very uh, very naive and uneducated at the time but it, it kind of worked to my benefit because when i looked at the bitcoin qt interface it was like no designer had ever touched it it was entirely created by software engineers and uh so that that always uh to, to me like screams a, a sense of like authenticity because i seen this with Linux before. And I knew what, what was driving these projects and what was driving these software developers um, and what, what the, the kind of the peer review process that goes into it and uh, the teamwork that goes into it. So even though I wasn't a software developer myself, uh, so by, by training, I was uh, I just gotten my bachelor's in accounting and, and master's in accounting and was very much focused on financial accounting and not even accounting information systems. Um, mm -hmm. It's only after I graduated from college that I started getting into uh, the actual software development side of things. Uh, but that's that's like a whole like three hour long conversation. But in any case, it, it does lead us to uh, why I started uh, Bitcoin Advisory. I wanted to contribute to free and open source software. Uh, the problem is that uh, you just don't generally get paid to do that. <laughs> there are exceptions, but uh, just by by its very nature. Uh, so to find a sustainable way to do that, I was like, all right, I got to have like uh, a business like consulting side of it where uh, I do get paid for my time. So that way I can contribute uh, lots of free time to, to the community. Um, and combined with like my inbox in late 2017 had kind of uh, become ridiculous because of the speculative mania around uh, Bitcoin. And uh, that, that made it clear to me that like, okay, I could like charge uh, people for my time and also be contributing to open source software. So um, yeah, the, uh, I, and now obviously when the price started crashing, like the business side just collapsed uh, you know, in a one-to-one -one correlation, uh, which wasn't really, you know, a bad news for me in the sense that it gave me more time to work on free and open source software. So um, I started out by really like the part I wanted to focus on was uh, improving the Bitcoin Core wallet. Uh, that was the wallet uh, I was using. It's the one I still use, uh, mm -hmm. but it had a lot of rough edges uh, even uh, by 2018. So I uh, picked up a C++ textbook because I knew 
I knew Python, I knew SQL, uh, C++ was new to me, but uh, I think that it's, for any software developer, you, you wanna kind of have a systems language like that in your toolkit. So yeah. it didn't seem totally crazy for me to pick up textbook and start from scratch there. Um, and uh, did some code reviews, did some little minor uh, contributions around the wallet and uh, applied to do the Chain Code Labs uh, Lightning residency. Uh, I, I had actually applied to Chain Code Labs before uh, and gotten rejected twice. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously one, sh one should never give up on uh, one's dream of, of working or uh, interning or uh, doing a residency at Chain Code Labs. So um, I, on the third try, I got accepted into their Lightning residency. And that completely changed like what I was focusing on on, on the open source side of things because um, I got I got brainwashed with the uh, lightning evangelism and realized that you know the Bitcoin system is not really complete without a layer two. Uh, and this is where I, I kind of broke with my previous point of view and uh, kind of a popular point of view uh, among a lot of Bitcoin commentators, which is the view that, you know, but Bitcoin can be fine even if Lightning fails. Uh, and I think that, I mean, even Bitcoin will be fine even if Lightning fails, but there has to be a layer two. There has to be uh, something, whether it's Lightning itself or some kind of other protocol uh, that that is building on top of Bitcoin uh, for it not only to, to scale on the payment side, um, but also to be able to uh, pay for its long-term payment uh, Transaction finality, or what's you know more colloquially called its its security, uh, with uh, the transaction fees. Otherwise, uh, the the um, block reward going away and, and Bitcoin's inflation subsidy going away would would cause problems uh, with you know reorgs, which got a lot of discussion with uh, the Binance hack uh, recently. But I think longer term, that's actually like one of the biggest risks uh, for Bitcoin's. Um, I, I want to say like reputation, really, because it's not, uh, you know, we can we can talk about the, the outer limits of it, but the reputation of it for a censorship resistant uh, final cash settlement system, uh, I think it has to have a layer two that is creating a non-fungible amount of demand for uh, on-chain transactions. And we can kind of dig into to that aspect of it. It, yep. it, it fundamentally it impacts the investment case for Bitcoin, because if Bitcoin uh, does not function without a uh, subsidy, without a block reward, uh, then we're going to have to change Bitcoin's monetary policy. Uh, and we can't keep the 21 million Bitcoin cap long term. Uh, so that opens up like a whole big can of worms. Uh, and uh, both from an investor's perspective, but also from uh, like a Will will Bitcoin fork in a million direction, different directions, uh, you know, type problem? I want to dig into there. Um, yeah. It's actually a good segue into that. So today, um, I think it's fine to mention Peter Schiff on Twitter mentioned, you know, this notion that Bitcoin could be replaced effectively by other crypto assets that the the hard cap of 21 million that you're discussing right now is basically nonsensical because it is open source and other crypto assets and other projects could basically fork it or emulate it and basically mint as many of these as they want and then so there would be massive supply um and so you know with you know kind of tempered demand obviously with massive supply then obviously as we know in economics you know prices usually go down um and so there's this notion you know from the community that are not as focused on bitcoin as you and others you know that this 21 million cap is not necessarily the the selling feature and again i, I use selling feature as a phrase i know it's something very near and dear to the bitcoin camp but the 21 million cap is not necessarily a feature that others that are outside of this world really necessarily kind of go to. And so explain that and that, you know, you know, I was going to rebut to him and give him some reasons why that, you know, you can't necessarily replace Bitcoin, but in your opinion, you know, you know, with that kind of a narrative, how would you, you know, speak to someone, an investor who is not as well versed as you and others in Bitcoin, how would you explain to them the 21 million cap and how you can't just, you know, kind of replace Bitcoin? Yeah, so I think that 
the 21 million cap is like it's an arbitrary number that Satoshi picked, right? He, he could have picked any number and, and he could have picked a permanent uh, rate of increase um, and or or a permanent absolute amount of Bitcoin, which would cause a, a kind of decreasing uh, um, rate of increase as uh, the pool got bigger and bigger of Bitcoins. But uh, he, he chose a, a the, the hard cap 21 million. Um, and practically speaking, like if you look at uh, what what's going on in in the Bitcoin market? Um, miners selling their uh, share of Bitcoin that they're creating on a day to day basis doesn't really affect the Bitcoin market uh, at this point. It, it certainly did in the past, but because uh, Satoshi kind of front loaded the issuance of BTC, um, now uh, we. We have an issuance rate that is very low. I think it's like 3% or something. And it's actually basically equivalent to Ethereum's. So if Bitcoiners want to make the store value argument, like they, and they're just looking at today's inflation rate, like, okay, well, it's comparable to, 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 to ETH or you know, Ethers or uh, whatever they want to call the underlying uh, kind of Ethereum asset. Um, so then, you know, and but and you really you could engineer any cryptocurrency to have like a very low inflation rate. Um, it's it's kind of trivial to do, even though other projects kind of take the opposite approach of, which was Bitcoin's approach of having a very high upfront inflation rate. It's just very hard to swallow for investors, right? And we see that with Zcash, where uh, Zcash has the same monetary policy as Bitcoin's, and right now they're still in the high inflation phase, which means that like if you look at the price of Zcash, it's been like steadily bleeding out uh, since its uh, initial kind of uh, uh, appearance on the market. And um, in any case, uh, the, uh, we can talk about the issue of distribution, you know, token distribution and, and that uh, the economics of that. Like uh, there's there's just like so much to explore there because it's an interesting topic. But um, the um, yeah, I think the absolute cap is, is arbitrary. Uh, I think, though, what is not arbitrary is kind of the. Um, you know th these these consensus rules that that we're enforcing uh, in, a, in a way they're they're all somewhat arbitrary and um, what I would liken it to is either like language or uh, to uh, what in game theory is is called a shelling point or a focal point and I, I can describe what that is but basically that. Um, we're going to have to agree to some kind of monetary policy. It doesn't matter what what kind uh, to an extent. We're just going to have to figure out which one we want. So uh, if if we go with a permanent inflation today, someone else can just come along and be like, I'm going to do a hard cap. And now I just have a better uh, monetary policy than you do. It's like, all right, well, all right, now we have to do the hard cap. Now, uh, what would compete with that would be uh, something called demurrage, um, or uh, this is what like Frycoin had, which is an altcoin, which is basically not only like we're going even harder than a hard cap, which is that we're going to take a percentage away from anyone holding. So we're going to have like a nominal deflation rate uh, where we start out with a large supply and we're going to actually shrink that supply uh, over time. Uh, and that's actually kind of the... Um, it's funny, uh, like XRP in a way has this, where you you burn XRP as as you use the system. So uh, strictly speaking, it's kind of a, a use based demurrage system. But um, the the problem with that approach is that it's uh, it's it's kind of unpopular uh, in the same way that like bank bail-ins are unpopular. Like people are, people have nominal rigidity uh, in in their preferences. So that's why it's much harder to take a pay cut. Um, than uh, to just keep your pay the same. And that's one of the arguments against deflation, right? Um, right. But in any case, it kind of makes the uh, hard cap approach a focal point. Um, and I think that Satoshi stumbled onto it. I also think it hits a reptilian part of the brain of, of the absolute scarcity of it, which you don't really have when you have like a permanent uh, percentage increase uh, where now... Now it's a growing pie, and it's kind of lost its um, a subconscious, like irrational part of the marketing pitch. Uh, even if the monetary economics are exactly the same, because you could say, well, everyone has already the baked-in expectations of what's going to happen, so it all gets priced in, you know, from like a strictly like 
rational expectations NPV point of view, which is just not how humans operate. <laughs> humans are, are uh, uh, full of cognitive biases. And um, I think the 21 million is kind of a hack on that of uh, taking advantage of the cognitive bias there. Okay. Now, um, in terms of, you know, the competition from from other altcoins, which also have permanent caps, like it, Litecoin has a permanent cap. And it was kind of the first major uh altcoin to, to go in and compete with, with Bitcoin. And uh, I, I remember when I, I was arguing with people on Facebook, uh, this was like back when I was still on Facebook, arguing about <laughs> crypto, uh, there were a lot of people arguing for Litecoin at the time. This was like early 2013. And their point was that um, it is the silver to Bitcoin's gold. And the, so they were just trying to like... Uh, you know, in, in NASCAR racing or, or in car racing in general, like you, you like drift behind the drag of the car in front of you. Like that's that's what it felt like to me where I was like, well, I, I understand that you you want the tailwinds of Bitcoin uh, with you. But the metaphor you're using doesn't make sense because I've studied 19th century like bimetallism and the relationship between Bitcoin and gold or sorry, between gold and silver. Mm. Uh and that silver got demonetized uh, when technology allowed for that to happen. And the only reason silver was a thing was because the the denomination of gold was just too too great. You had too mm -hmm. great a value in one ounce of gold, so you, you didn't have like small change basically. Um, mm -hmm. And so it solved that problem. Whereas Bitcoin's divisible, you know, one Bitcoin equals 100 million satoshis. So they're really, in my mind, like there's no divisibility problem. So the silver to Bitcoin's gold narrative falls apart under scrutiny. Now, um, that hasn't stopped uh, Litecoin from uh, keeping up with Bitcoin. If you kind of look at the Litecoin to Bitcoin ratio, it's done a lot better than I would have expected at the time. I would have expected that Litecoin would bleed out uh, because it doesn't make economic sense uh, and their sales pitch doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. um, that hasn't happened. So if you look at the ratio between Bitcoin and Litecoin, uh, it stayed pretty much the same over the years. It, obviously, like uh, Litecoin pumps against Bitcoin uh, fairly regularly uh, just because it's it's a less liquid asset that you can cause it to, to pump. Um, but in, in any case, um, I think that the reason that uh, Litecoin and the other altcoins uh, on an individual basis have been able to pump against Bitcoin, but ultimately not really have a sustainable now, I might be speaking too early because we're only like 10 years into Bitcoin and then, you know, even fewer years into all of these other altcoins. But so far, I haven't seen an altcoin that um, can pump against Bitcoin and then keep those gains and and not kind of mean revert uh, back to uh, a kind of a, a adoption ceiling versus Bitcoin. Uh, right. And we, the closest that's come to that is Ethereum. Uh, and we, we can talk about how, how it was able to do that and what its prospects are. But um, I think that the reason for that ultimately comes down to the question of, of what is the money and what is the use value of a money? I think the use value of money is its liquidity relative to other goods and services. And then we can reverse engineer that into thinking what will increase in liquidity over time and kind of what in the future will have better liquidity uh, versus other goods and services. And so I think that that's where it kind of gets into like a, a Keynesian beauty contest of, of uh, reflexivity or circularity in, in that. And it's very frustrating for, for commentators on this where, you know, monetary premium uh, essentially is a is a permanent Ponzi scheme. It's a bubble uh, that. You know, we see it with gold, where it has a monetary premium above its industrial use. And then we see it in its pure sense with the U.S. dollar, where it's like, yeah, and gold bugs like go crazy over this. They're, you know, it's not backed by anything or it's not it doesn't have an industrial use. And thus, how can it have any kind of um, bootstrapping effect to, to, to or a backstop to its monetary value? In, in the worst case scenario, you know, people will say, well, you can melt gold down to electronics or whatever. So um, let me dig but, in there for a second. Yeah, let me dig in yeah. there for a second. So we're talking about use cases. And so 
it's been debated by me and it's been debated by other guests. And I understand that, you know, as I air this show that you have a massive following in the Bitcoin camp and they probably will start sending me hate mail, but I, I do love Bitcoin. So everyone should know that. Um, it was the first thing it was probably going to be the last thing. And, uh, you know, it is, you know, in my opinion, you know, the programmable money and it is digitized gold and it is something that will obviously change economies and society for the best. And so, so hard stop there. So no one on the Bitcoin camp will send me hate mail and send me a decapitated head. Uh, they horse still of- will. Don't worry. They I, they'll still be outraged. If I, you don't tow the party line a hundred percent, you're gonna get heat for it. <laughs> I can't do that because that's just not the way that I'm programmed. I'm programmed to be more of a second level thinker. And so when I yeah. see everyone jumping into a pool, I know that that pool is not going to have a lot of water for me to you know kind of enjoy myself. And so um, that's just the way that I'm programmed. And so. There's this notion, this this kind of bifurcation between transactional and computational. So Bitcoin on the transactional side, you know, being a programmable money, being the programmable money, um, is a massive, obviously, total addressable market. Um, but it, you know, in a sense, you know, there's always this kind of benchmarking in terms of transactions per second, and then there's always con- you know conversations about scalability. Um, and then with Ethereum and some of the other kind of, you know, more of the, you know, call it smart contract uh, kind of protocols and platforms where you are effectively creating something that is computational. Um, you know, there is this difference between, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum between the the actual very nature of it. Bitcoin does have script. Um, but it's really not something that, from my understanding, the community really wants to, you know, kind of bring into, you know, a smart contract platform. They don't really see that as something that's going to be accretive because it could potentially, from my understanding, you know, increase the attack factor at L1. And so there is a difference here between, you know, you know kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum from a transactional versus a computational standpoint. I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, so I think that... Um it's kind of but part of the challenging aspect of like evaluating these systems is that we're we're very much used to having taking for granted what our money is. Um, and you know we've we've had we've had monetary transitions in the past, but it's always been that the um, the handoff was a peg, right? where uh, we went from the classical gold standard where a dollar was worth, you know, X number of ounces of gold. And then uh, that peg slowly slid until it was finally broken by Nixon in the 70s. Uh, And so uh, even uh, uh, for the euro, right, the euro was like pegged against the uh, existing European currencies that uh, became a part of the eurozone. So uh, we're not used to thinking about how does like a money emerge from nothing? Uh, and what is the process by which that that happens? Uh, and I almost liken it to in equities. You know, we're, we're we know about like the Warren Buffett, like value investing, value stocks, all of this. And then we have growth stocks. And so the world of growth stocks and of like early stage venture or even pre-revenue, you know, seed investing, like these are very different uh, investment like mindsets than the world of value of uh, of like the Seth Klarman's of the world. You know, the, it's a completely different way of looking at the world. And so like Seth Klarman and uh, Mark Andreessen are like two fundamentally different uh, minds, I would argue. And the in the world of currencies, uh, we only have Seth Klarman's. We don't, uh, you know, until 2009, we didn't have any growth currencies. Uh, and so we only had uh, value currencies, and the game was all about uh, which currencies are going to devalue versus each other at different rates. Uh, and you know, you you had uh, you know that's what the forex markets are all about, right? Uh, now you do have some currencies that are stronger than others, like the Swiss franc, for example. Um, but their their whole objective is like. How do we make it so the Swiss franc does not appreciate versus uh, the euro or the U.S. dollar? So, like, even they're playing the value investing game. Like, they don't want a growth currency. Uh, and it's actually a problem for them that the Swiss franc has historically, like, it, 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 since the financial crisis, been a growth currency where uh, they have foreign investors trying to, like, invest in Swiss francs. Um, in any case, so uh, the how to analyze, like, all right, 
what what drives a growth currency and uh, what what makes it so that first of all you go from zero to one, right? Like how do you how do you have a token that goes from uh, someone has these numbers and letters on their computer, which let's be frank, like why would we value that at anything greater than zero? Uh, and then once we do, uh, what are what are the like long term um, value accrual theses that we can develop around uh, these growth currencies where, um, okay, l let's say that the value accrual is going to come from these tokens uh, having spe specific sources of demand. And so like that's kind of the, the, the core part of the utility token thesis. And the metaphor I would use in the world of like value currencies is that um, people who analyze currencies from a utility token perspective are going to say things like the petrodollar is what gives the dollar value, right? That, that uh, the global oil markets are denominated in dollars uh, due to geopolitical you know, machinations over the 20th century. Uh, that that's why the U.S. dollar has a global reserve status. Now, I think that actually gets things backwards. I think that oil contracts are denominated in dollars because the U.S. dollar emerged as a global reserve currency. And I think the U.S. dollar emerged as that for a combination of the credibility of U.S. monetary policy post Volcker, um, basically, and the relative... Um, lack of credibility of other monetary policies in the world, uh, you know, with, with some notable exceptions like uh, the German Bundesbank or, you know, what became the euro. But um, even then, they, they've had trouble, you know, competing to become a reserve currency. Uh, and then the the other flip side to it is just the uh, pure, like, geopolitics of it and how, you know, uh, World War II and, you know, the, 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 the superpower model of, of all that. So, like, that's why I think the U.S. dollar uh, became the world reserve currency, and it was able to break, you know, gold being a reserve currency uh, only in 1980 uh, mm -hmm. with the actions of Paul Volcker. So I think that's why oil contracts are denominated in dollars, uh, and I don't think that's where the dollar like gets its uh, um, its value as a global reserve currency. So that's where like I. I kind of disagree, but I just wanted to put it into the context of like what the utility token thesis is, which is <laughs> let's develop areas where uh, th these, you know, these products, these goods and services that people want to purchase, they only accept this money. And thus we can create demand for holding this money. Uh, and, and then this money has a market cap. This money, you know, has, has a, a pool of holders. Um, and so that's been like, uh, there's a lot of different uh, altcoins that have been like aggressively executing on this thesis. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that it's it's a totally plausible theory on its face. Like there's nothing that, about it that screams like, uh, you know, this is crazy and it's not going to work. Um, because the, the arguments against it, I think, are, are, are fairly like... Um, um, long and convoluted and thus it's very hard to 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 convince people on twitter for example that that they're wrong on this uh, well, i think that ultimately uh the the, the market will, will have to render the decision rather than uh theoreticians in in medium articles right um, but uh so i i forget even what the the question was david i'm sorry i i went on the utility token tangent that's fine. It was basically, you know, to surmise and to ask it in the most pithy way in a world, you know, in five, 10, 15, 20 years, do you foresee or can you accept that there will be multiple variants of, you know, permissionless systems out there that are not just Bitcoin that serve a purpose? Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. Because I think that even if the uh, utility token thesis is not enough to bootstrap a money into being kind of the uh, monetary shelling point, the focal point, which is that it's the most liquid good or service in society, or sorry, it's, it's the most liquid like asset uh, for trading goods and services. I do think that it can bootstrap you into being, uh, being a currency that people actually hold. Uh, right. Even if they and I think that we we see that in, in the existing uh, crypto markets where um, there are absolutely people who believe in in Ethereum, who believe in EOS, 
who believe in all of these other um, uh, approaches to to uh, developing a, a money. Um, but ultimately, they also grant that uh, Bitcoin as a store of value is like an investment to them. And they're also going to hold Bitcoin. It might even be a substantial portion of their portfolio. It might be like 60%. Or even if they go like a market cap weighted approach of like, you know, 50 to 80%, however you want to slice and dice it. Um, so I think that like, it's interesting because uh, there, there's two phenomena. One is altcoin traders who talk about how they're trying to make more Bitcoin, which I find to be interesting, but also uh, portfolio construction in this space where people grant that um, you know they they themselves are not super uh, excited about the growth prospects of Bitcoin, but they see it as beta in the sense in the same sense that we would see like an index fund as beta uh, you know as market beta in the traditional finance world. And then they try to generate alpha by trading uh, altcoins uh, it, kind of with the active part of their portfolio uh, and making prop bets of, I think EOS is going to grow faster than Bitcoin, or I think Ethereum is going to grow faster than Bitcoin. And here's my thesis for that. At the same time, like Bitcoin's going to do great. Um, and so I find it like interesting that there's there are very few market participants in crypto who are 0% Bitcoin and 100% altcoin. Uh, That's right. They are few and far in between. They're very brave souls. but uh, And it, <laughs> I admire the conviction, but uh, I think the reality is that they, they actually are a very small percentage of the market. Right. I think I have a, you know, it's a hypothesis, but it's not necessarily fully baked up, but it's a hypothesis is that, you know, when we talk about programmable money, we talk about a, the programmable money, you know, being a, a movement to Bitcoin and, you know, when... 10 years down the road when all the gamers that are now there's about 2.2 billion gamers and i just tweeted about this it was a tweet storm 2.2 billion gamers out there who are using digitally native currencies or in a form non-fundable tokens and when they become more prominent and prominent within the economy if they see you know physical gold or they see something that represents you know kind of the same type of store value they are going to be programmed to want to have it on their phone or going to want to have it, you know, something that is, you know, readily available that is in a medium that they're used to. But again, that is a longer term. That's a longer tail. That's something that will happen in an evolutionary standpoint. You know, that's something that society has to adapt to. And you mentioned that at the, at the top of the hour that there is a process for society to have to undergo to change their psyche and change their psychology on that. And I think, you know, in terms of Bitcoin being a long-term play, I think that's why, you know, a lot of people feel that that is a much longer-term play, and that's why they want to have it now, um, whereas some of the uh, alternatives and some of the other digital assets and some of the other projects and protocols are addressing things that might be happening faster because, again, with, like, uh, you know, non-fundable tokens in gaming and with prediction markets and other things that are happening out there, these are things that people are a little bit more, I guess you can say the, the retention and the adoption scales are a little bit shorter than say, you know, completely changing someone's philosophy and someone's, you know, kind of belief in a money or store value. So I, I think, you know, you're right. You hit, you know, there is a difference there um, and something that would love to continue. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, in the news about the the Facebook uh, coin that they're coming out. Or we don't we don't really have a lot of details on it, but, they, you know, they want to have some kind of stable coin, some kind of on-ramp uh, uh, as part of their product offering at Facebook. And I would actually, that analysis that you just laid out, I would apply it in the same way, which is that, um, it, like I was saying, like we're not used to changing our money. And so psychologically, like Facebook coming in and saying like, let's change our money. Even, and it's kind of a, um, it's part of the on-ramp where like you've got, uh, JP Morgan Chase, your checking account, your U.S. dollars there. Everyone, you know, I understand there's a lot of unbanked people in the U.S. and that's something we could discuss as well. But for the most part, like that works fine for a lot of people and they're perfectly comfortable with it. Um, and to get them to think, well, it doesn't have to be that way. So, you know, the first step is kind of the... Um, the fintech wave of payments that we saw with like Venmo or uh, Cash App, you know, where it's like, all right, now I'm breaking away from the traditional uh, banking system that my parents, you know, grew up with, and I'm trying something that's a little more like tech savvy. Um, and then I would argue like the next step was, 
Facebook Messenger adding payments. Mm -hmm. And now the next evolution is like Facebook, and this is the biggest step of like changing the, the actual, um, I, I don't know if they're going to change the unit of account, like, or if they're going to call it like Facebook dollars or something like that, you know, but basically changing, changing the unit and uh, breaking that psychological barrier. I think that for them to find this to be worthwhile, they have to do that. Otherwise the product is like, well, how is this different than Venmo? Um, right. If you're not creating like a stable coin that is accessible outside the U.S., you know, in, in uh, countries that have currency issues, I think has been uh, their, their, at least from what's been leaked. I, you know, it would be nice if, if we had more context and I'm sure we'll get more context over the coming months. But um, I think that it's part of the on-ramp. I just don't see it as the end of the on-ramp, right? And I think that's kind of like the... People are worried that it is, and they're like, oh, this is awful. Like, Facebook's going to control the financial system, and they're, oh, we're not going to have any privacy. And look, this destroys the value proposition of Bitcoin. And, you know, checkmate Bitcoiners, like, they're going to take the market from you. I, I don't see it that way at all. I, I think that they are actually a crucial part of mainstreaming Bitcoin um, by saying, like, hey, we don't have to do things this way. We don't have to do things with sovereign government currencies. We can have corporate currencies, uh, and that allows consumers to say, "All right, I agree. We can have corporate currencies." And then, well, I, you know, if if Facebook gains traction with their coin, I don't think it's going to be long before Apple and Google and Amazon and others try to emulate that because it's a very interesting business model, all right, of being able to print your own money, uh, even if they don't want to say that up front, right? Like that's not. Uh, it's not kosher to be uh, advertising that, but uh, I think that it's understood that the economics of this are very appealing um, and that uh, that's why kind of tethers has been getting a lot of competition because, you know, I was talking about the evolution on kind of the fintech Silicon Valley side. On the crypto side, we've seen it, the opposite evolution of things moving closer and closer to the traditional financial system. Whether it's with uh, stable coins like uh, Tethers or, you know, now the more regulated Gemini USD or uh, Coinbase USD. Um, so we have the trend actually coming in from the other direction as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're going to they're going to butt heads. And it's going to be interesting to see the competition right between someone like Coinbase and someone like Facebook. And there's a little like overlap uh, there. And um, but I think that the all of this is beneficial to Bitcoin in Increasing the liquidity for Bitcoin, it's going to be easier for people to get into crypto and then be able to choose whatever asset they want to hold, right? It's like, an exposure like, point. When, yeah. um, once it's all in the same wallet and they can just hit a button and there's no like ACH from my bank account, right? It's just like instant conversion into whatever crypto asset I want. I, I don't think like I, I have the uh, maybe it's the arrogance or self-confidence to say that like I don't think that. Bitcoiners should be afraid of that. Like, I think that Bitcoin will win that game. And any, uh, you know, the wider the on-ramp is, that bigger that highway is, uh, the bigger Bitcoin becomes. Like, I, I don't have any uh, concerns about uh, it cannibalizing Bitcoin's uh, value proposition because I think that it's, it's completely elsewhere, right? Um, in terms of the, uh, the thesis of this is going to increase in value. Right. So now you'll get hate mail too. Um, yeah. And so... You know, two things I also wanted to address um, in terms of scaling and SegWit. So we had this conversation. Why we're actually having this 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 uh, recording is because you and I got into it a little bit on Twitter, which I love. Um, and by the way, anyone who is you know a Bitcoiner and on Twitter, I, I will talk to you. I I am the type, as I said, that I I'm a second. You know, I try to be a second level thinker where I do not go to the mean and listen to the herd. I try to listen to everyone. And especially on the show, I have people who are building on Ethereum. I have people who are Bitcoiners. I have people who are using DAGs and all sorts of different things. So the more I get to learn and the more I get to share, I think we're all better. So in terms of scaling and SegWit, so, you know, with Bitcoin, you know, we're at, you know, on L1, it's about a three TPS and about 35%, give or take, have adopted SegWit, which I know is supposed to be kind of a way to obviously improve that. So, you know, what is going on with scaling uh, at L1? And then also, you can, you mentioned Lightning. I know you've done a lot of that with um, with your work uh, on L2. What is happening with scaling and with SegWit? And why did only 35% or so of the community really adopt it? 
Yeah, so um, scaling on Bitcoin has like a very long history. In fact, the first email in response to Satoshi, in response to Satoshi's first email, where he was posting the uh, white paper in 2009, the first response to him uh, was about scaling, was about how, how is this going to scale? Um, so from the get-go, scaling has been a huge conversation uh, in in the both in the technical community and in in the wider Bitcoin community and uh, you know among uh, startups that are building on top of Bitcoin because obviously they're impacted by Bitcoin scaling roadmap and then also the you know the VCs that are invested in those startups as well as people who are on an individual basis invested in Bitcoin and thus they feel like you know if, if Bitcoin can't scale, then their personal investment is at risk, right? Uh, where uh, they, they they draw a straight line uh, between those two, which is totally fair to do. Um, and so um, one of the first things on, on the scaling side that happened was that Satoshi decided to... Um, uh, so in Bitcoin, you've got two different things going on. You've got uh, a hard fork, which loosens Bitcoin's consensus rules, and a soft fork, which restricts or reduces, um, uh, uh, tightens Bitcoin's uh, consensus rules. And so, um, you know, I don't want to get into like why, technically why that distinction exists, but basically Satoshi created a soft fork where he lowered the limit um, of TPS uh, by lowering the, what's called the block size limit. Um, and he lowered it to one megabyte. And this was years ago when he was still involved. I think it was 2010. Um, and the reason he gave for doing that at the time was that his concern at the time was that if someone were to spam the Bitcoin blockchain, that they would be able to essentially perform a denial of service attack and take down all the Bitcoin nodes. Because if you, if you don't have a block size limit, hypothetically, someone could mine a block that is, let's say, five gigabytes big, right? They just stuff it with nonsense data. Uh, and it's still following all of the Bitcoin rules, so everyone still has to accept it. But now that means that every node has to download that five gigabyte block. And if someone does this for an extended period of time, none of the nodes are going to be able to keep up because blocks come out every 10 minutes. Uh, and if we want to have a, um, a decentralized system, we got to have like more than one node uh, running. So... I'm kind of using like the extreme argument here of like what if blocks are like crazy big. Um, but then if we b dial that down and say like, all right, well, what's wrong with like 10 megabytes or five megabytes? You know, like that's already five times more capacity than one megabyte. So why why stick to one megabyte? Like what's that based on? What's the what's the research behind it? Truth is, there is no research behind it because Satoshi arbitrarily decided one megabyte in the same way that he arbitrarily decided 21 million bitcoins, um, and no one else had a, a real say in it. He was just like, "Here, I, this is the soft fork we're doing." Like that was Bitcoin's governance in the early days. Uh, Satoshi was very much kind of a benevolent dictator and was able to dictate Bitcoin's consensus rules, which today is like anathema to Bitcoiners. And I might get some hate mail for saying that, but. The reality, that, that was the reality back then, is that uh, Satoshi's way was, you know, Bitcoin. Right. Uh, and so from there, um, so that wasn't a problem at the time because we were so far from a one megabyte block. And at the time, blocks were much smaller than that. So when he set that in place, people were like, OK, we'll be able to raise that in the future. And we're not even close to that today. So this is something we can just disregard. It's a nice, uh, you know, it's a nice safeguard to have in case someone does try to do a denial of service attack, but it has no practical economic implications. And it's, it doesn't affect uh, any of the narratives about Bitcoin about like cheap payments, because mm -hmm. you can have cheap payments on Bitcoin as long as we're very far from that one megabyte block size limit, as long as the actual size of Bitcoins or of, of blocks are still, you know, uh, below the block size limit. Now, um, this so all along though even when we were very far from hitting one megabytes there were a lot of people in the bitcoin community who were saying like we need to get ahead of this and we need to increase capacity before it becomes an issue so uh there were a lot of people advocating for an increase in the block size limit from like i remember like 
both before I got involved in 2013 and then after. Like this was an ongoing uh, topic of conversation where uh, Gavin Andreessen, who uh, at, at, back in 2013 was kind of seen as the spokesperson for the Bitcoin developers and uh, kind of the technical leader of the project uh, because Satoshi had uh, handed handed the project off to him, essentially, um, there was the perception, and I certainly held this view at the time, was that in the same way that Satoshi was kind of able to uh, dictate uh, the consensus rules during the early days of Bitcoin, that Gavin had the, the clout and the influence and kind of the um, leadership legitimacy uh, to, to dictate the consensus rules, that it, it, whatever he decided upon was kind of where Bitcoin was going to go. Um, and you could kind of make the same argument for like Vitalik today, right? Like whatever scaling approach he blesses is the way it's going to go. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true for Vitalik today. And it turned out to not be true for Gavin at the time. So Gavin uh, wrote a series of blog posts that was explaining, all right, we're at one megabyte today. Um, I've, I've run some simulations and I think that we can safely increase the block size limit to 32 megabytes. So... I propose that we do a hard fork and and do exactly that. Um, there was a, a backlash uh, from both developers who were working on the Bitcoin project at the time, and then uh, community members, people outside of Bitcoin or outside of the Bitcoin development, you know, uh, community, who uh, did not see that as as the way forward. And there, uh, I, I was among them. Uh, now, at the time, I was not nearly as uh, kind of technical as I am today. I was, I was very much thinking about it from an economic perspective rather than a technical perspective. So at the time, my, my, my economic view was that um, Bitcoin has a monopoly on transaction finality for Bitcoin-denominated transactions. Uh, and thus, it actually has monopoly pricing power to an extent. Um, obviously, at some point, uh, so and the reason it has that, like, and it's true today, it was true back then. Uh, if you want to use Bitcoin as a vehicle currency, where you're going to get into Bitcoin, transfer the Bitcoin, and then to someone else, and then they're going to get out of Bitcoin, uh, the number one cost involved in that is going to be the slippage. Right, so if you're trying to do that time, let's do it with $5 million. Um, there's gonna be a certain slippage cost to doing that, uh, which is going to eclipse the uh, on-chain transaction fee. So like the on-chain transaction fee might be $5, uh, but the slippage costs on both sides of using Bitcoin as a vehicle currency, um, which you know you could argue is like, it's like the fundamental utility of any money is, is being used as a vehicle in that way. Um, that that slippage cost is going to dominate the total transaction costs involved. Mm -hmm. And so um, if an altcoin is much less liquid, then the slippage cost is much greater for it. So today, if you wanted to get into Bitcoin for a billion dollars and get out of Bitcoin for a billion dollars, the total transaction cost is going to be very different than if you try to do that with Ethereum and Litecoin and XRP, like all of these, like you would eat into the order book a lot more in both directions uh, and end up paying a lot more uh, with a smaller market cap uh, cryptocurrency. Right. Now, obviously, like U.S. Treasuries uh, would do better in that regard than, than uh, Bitcoin would, but they don't have the, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the properties of Bitcoin that the people doing this are looking for. Right. In any case, um, so... I viewed it as like Bitcoin doesn't necessarily need to be uh, very competitive on the on-chain transaction fees. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's okay if we kind of uh, reach this one megabyte limit and that causes on-chain transaction fees to go up. And in fact, long term, it, it's probably beneficial because if we're getting rid of that inflation subsidy and we're getting rid of what's currently providing the transaction finality where the miners are economically incentivized to you know, not uh, create uh, reorgs, uh, then we need to be, we need to have much higher fee revenue. And to have higher fee revenue, we can go like two different ways. Like we can go the, the Walmart route, right, of massive volume, very small margins, 
Uh, and that's kind of what uh, the big block camp for Bitcoin wanted was like, let's just have like 10 gigabyte blocks and we'll charge, you know, uh, over the next 50 years. I'm not saying like immediately. I don't want to straw man them. Um, but let's have very big blocks and then have a very small transaction fee on each one. And then that'll add up so that we actually do have uh, good uh, finality for Bitcoin as a settlement system. Right. And the opposite view is kind of the like luxury good approach of like, let's artificially create scarcity. Uh, so then we can actually have more revenue than we would if we didn't have this artificial scarcity. And that gets down to the fundamental price elasticity of demand, right? If you if if you go back to your days in microeconomics, if you know, for the finance majors listening, like and look at monopoly pricing, like ultimately what determines monopoly pricing is um, the you know the, uh, the 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 marginal uh, demand elasticities uh, of uh, participants. So I think that the demand for on-chain transactions is relatively inelastic. It's not absolutely inelastic. At some point, people do start going for substitute goods. So we saw this in 2017, right? In December of 2017, when Bitcoin's on-chain transaction fees skyrocketed to like $25 a transaction, $35 a transaction. Yeah. Started hearing stories from people saying like, oh, well, I'm going to use Litecoin. I'm going to use Dogecoin. Like they have much lower on-chain transaction fees. So, or I'm going to use Ethereum. Like it has much lower on-chain transaction fees. So that's where you kind of start seeing the uh, outer limits of that, that uh, price elasticity. And you start seeing substitution. And that becomes a real risk for Bitcoin from the, the point of view of trying to compete uh, in the market for monies. Uh, if the uh, underlying uh, payment system and settlement system is is getting to a cost that is pushing people onto other platforms, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I also don't think that I, I, you know, it, it overshot the elasticity in December 2017. But I don't think that it overshot it by a lot. And I don't think that like a, 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 if transaction fees were like five dollars a transaction that that would cause a, um, a material substitution effect. Like, I, 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 if we look at, you know, what I was talking about earlier with the slippage costs of getting in and out of these cryptocurrencies, like, I think that $5 a transaction would be perfectly fine. The problem with Bitcoin and the problem with the Bitcoin's fee market is that you can't target the, the cost. You right. can't target that transaction cost because it is kind of the result of the demand between or the the uh, interplay between the demand for on-chain transactions and then the supply, which is fixed of one megabyte. Now, um, we can ask ourselves, like, all right, how do we increase the supply? Uh, but really, you would want to increase it in response to demand, right? So that in, in situations where Bitcoin is in a price mania, and so it's kind of an exogenous factor to Bitcoin, how do we make it so that uh, Bitcoin blocks can dynamically increase in size when it needs to and then uh, shrink back, you know, lower the limit back after that mania. So then we don't have a situation where uh, there's no fee pressure at all uh, like we have today. Uh, most of the time uh, it costs between like a penny and a nickel to, to send on chain transaction fees uh, because blocks are not full anymore because, you know, the, the price crashed. Um, and then we see these spikes, right? Like we saw a spike when Bitcoin went up to $9,000. Suddenly the mempool where it's kind of the backlog of transactions trying to get into Bitcoin blocks started getting filled up. And then, uh, you know, there's volatility there. Right. Um, which brings us to lightning. But I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, to cut my rambling off and, and dig into okay. any of that. Well, I want to hear, you know, it's getting to the top of the hour, so I kind of want you to surmise quickly, if you can, about the work you're doing with Lightning. Um, and then, you know, I think we'll have you back on again because I want to talk more about the the architecture of, you know, within, within proof of work and the architecture of the blocks. It is linear, um, and there have been other attempts at things like graphs, like DAGs, that IOTA have used and other protocols have used IOTA and Logos and some others out there that have been using those because they feel that the linear nature of proof of work um, is one of the inherent reasons why it's slower. 
but we weren't, we're not going to go there because that, you know, we can get onto massive tangents here, but I definitely want to have you back and talk about more about BIPs and those are, you know, what are happening within the Bitcoin community and what improvements and innovations are happening within Bitcoin. I know there are BIPs out there and I know that there are things that the, the dev community are working on to make further improvements uh, to the core. And so we'll definitely have you on to talk more about that. But, you know, to surmise, because of all the work you've been doing in Lightning and Lightning, I'm a big fan of. You know, shout out to the CASA team and Jeremy Welch uh, because of the work that they're doing to support that too. You know, talk a little bit about Lightning and, you know, kind of surmise some of the things that you're doing there. Yeah, sure. So um, where we left off was that on-chain transaction fees are are very volatile right now. And uh, the reason for that is because there's not a good way of arbitraging uh, the use of blockchain over time. So ideally, a a Bitcoin system user, uh, someone who is sending and receiving value using Bitcoin, would be able to uh, tactically choose when they're going to uh, pay the on-chain transaction fee so that they can pay it when it's low. And then when it's high, they don't have to pay it. And so that's what Lightning allows. Because with, with Lightning, what you can do is lock up some Bitcoin in a multi-sig contract with anyone because uh you can make it in such a way that it is trust minimized. So you don't have to trust the person you're you're locking Bitcoin up with, but then you're able to transfer Bitcoin between each other um, at any point without hitting the actual Bitcoin blockchain uh, until you want to. And so that allows you to uh, open these channels when on-chain transaction fees are low, be able to send value to each other even when on-chain transaction fees are high because you're not using the Bitcoin blockchain uh, and wait it out until on-chain fees are high or low again, and then you can close that channel if, if that is something you need to do. The, the metaphor I, I use for this is uh, in the legal system today, we don't go to the Supreme Court every time we have a contract that we are relying on. We only go to the legal system when we have a contract that we have a dispute over or that we're trying to change and modify, right? Um, And so uh, I would argue that like Bitcoin is similar and that uh, with Lightning, we're essentially saying like, all right, if we don't have a dispute about a Bitcoin contract, we don't need to go on chain. On chain is the Supreme Court. It's this global system that adjudicates uh, smart contracts, uh, you know, at a fairly high cost, uh, both from kind of, you know, the transaction fee part, but also the fact that you're creating a negative externality cost on everyone running a Bitcoin node. Um, so we need to minimize our footprint on this global uh, ledger and try to uh, send value to each other off chain as much as possible. Uh, and so that's that's kind of why I'm excited about Lightning the most. I think that it'll, it'll get rid of this on-chain transaction fee volatility. And instead, we can see um, kind of a, a steady increase in uh, on-chain transaction fees which we can respond to from an engineering perspective and also eventually from a community uh, consensus perspective of doing a hard fork to increase the block size limit, which is uh, hugely controversial, but (laughs) I'll I'll get heat for that from the Bitcoin community. But I think that that's eventually what it's going to do. And uh, that way, um, and so that's why I'm excited to work on Lightning. That's why I'm excited that Casa and Lightning Labs are, are working on Lightning and that there's um, you know, also uh, Radar Ion uh, from from uh, uh, from San Francisco. They're also uh, working on on Lightning. So I think that there's a lot of great people. Uh, and then, of course, Blockstreams uh, see Lightning team. So a lot of great people involved who uh, kind of share this view that uh, the future of Bitcoin scaling and also of the user experience on Bitcoin is in Lightning. Because uh, from the user experience point of view. It's the huge advantage is that you can send value instantly. You don't have to wait for the next block to come uh, to, to, to be able to do that. Um, now, there are downsides from a UX perspective, and we can talk about those because those are real challenges. But ultimately, I think that uh, there's so many smart engineers working on it that the, 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 um, the kind of the rough edges from a UX perspective are, are getting worked on and iterated on over time where eventually we're going to be able to hand a lightning wallet, whether it's custodial or non-custodial, and we can get into that debate, um, to, to someone who just wants to use Bitcoin. Um, yeah, so that's that's what excites me about Bitcoin or lightning and Bitcoin. 
Well, as I said again, we will have Pierre on the show again because there's a lot of unfinished threads here that we were discussing. It was a great conversation about the state of the state of Bitcoin and about what's happening thus far and about why it is an important part of an investor's portfolio. Um, so, Pierre, if people want to find you and discuss more about this, where can they find you? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter probably way too much, uh, way more than I should be. So you can find me on Twitter uh, at Pierre underscore Rochard. Um, and I co-host the Noted Bitcoin podcast with Michael Goldstein, where we we talk about Bitcoin. But um, it's, you know, I would only recommend it if you really, really want to hear about Bitcoin, because that's really all we talk about. Um, and uh, then... Um, my DMs are open. So if you have questions, if, if you if something I said uh, struck you, then you want to follow up, um, slide into my DMs and, and, and we'll discuss it. And I, I, it's my favorite topic to discuss. So I'm always happy to engage on this. Um, and yeah, you can also find me on uh, BitcoinAdvisory.com. So if you want to send me a message there, uh, I'd be happy to get in touch and, and we can talk about what you're working on. Awesome. So this was Pierre Rochard, Bitcoin Advisory, uh, one of the proponents out there, very lively proponents of the Bitcoin community. Uh, find him, talk to him, ask him questions. I know I do, and I will continue to do so. And so uh, we'll have you back on again. And uh, thanks for being on the show, Pierre. Take care. Great. Thanks for having me on. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.